In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Brothers, sisters, and dear respected viewers, Assalamu alaikum, jamia'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome to our latest in our series on the topic of the afterlife. Without going into too much detail uh, to recap the entire series, we were at the point of following the journey of the human being as he moves spiritually and existentially into the outside of this world and into the afterlife. So what we covered in the last time that we met is that we tried to start looking at the afterlife and try to draw a little bit of a portrait or get an image from the afterlife based on a very quick canvassing, a very quick looking at the various verses of the Holy Quran that talk about the big milestones. And so we began this topic initially before getting into all the details related to the afterlife. We spent a little bit of time understanding death, the moments leading up to death, the moments of death itself. And we said that even though when you look at the body of the human being, it looks like this is happening in very few instances, what is happening spiritually uh, could be lasting much longer or how it is experienced by the person who is dying. This could be something that looks much more difficult or much more pleasant depending on how good they are, depending on their intentions and their sincerity and their deeds. And this entire process is also made up of milestones. So there are the moments leading up to death, the dying moments. There is the extraction of the soul. Uh, and we said that this can greatly vary from one person to another. The manner in which the angels are going to deal with you, treat you as you are dying, greatly changes from one person to another. And then there's actually the moment of death and entering into the alam of Barzakh, but you are not entirely there yet. So there is a crushing of the grave that takes place and followed by uh, the moments where you go through a sort of interrogation that the angels uh, who are assigned with your interrogation come and ask you about those things that are supposed to be the main pillars of your faith, who you truly are spiritually. So those are the, you know, the, the cornerstones of your belief. They're not going into the details. If you go into the narrations, they're not going to ask you specifically about every, you know, Fajr uh, prayer, did you perform it or not? And every day of, of fasting, did you fast it or not? But they will ask you, did you pray? And who is your God? And who is your prophet? And who are your imams? And those are the big questions that will get you positioned for your life, your existence, and the very vast world that we refer to as Adam and Barzakh. The world that you spend while your body is in your physical grave, but you are in a spiritual realm that is related to this world. There is a relationship. We said it's almost like it's a parallel world 
to this one, but it is not quite this world. And there is certainly a relationship between what is happening in this world and what is happening in Adam al-Barzakh, only that, only that it is not as, you know, limited to the material events and the material uh, people living in this world. So inshallah, those components are clear. With that in mind, with our understanding of Adam al-Barzakh in mind, we then moved to the afterlife. And we said Adam al-Barzakh constitutes for a normal human being living in this world, their last phase, their last chapter in their existence in this world. And then they move into the afterlife. And so we started looking at the verses of the Holy Quran that talk about how this afterlife comes about. Because clearly, as we saw multiple times until now, and we're still going through the details and, and this is becoming clearer and clearer, the afterlife is an entirely different world. It's a different type of existence. So how does it happen? Does it exist right now or not? And in what sense? And uh, is it just a continuation of our existence in this world and then barzakh and then there, or something else is happening? And so what we saw until now is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clearly establishes in the Holy Quran that he will put an end to this world and this world, as we said, includes Adam al-Barzakh. So Adam al-Barzakh is part of this world, except that we, it's not accessible to us under regular circumstances. Uh, those who are in Barzakh don't really have access to the people in this world, except for the exceptions, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows. And the opposite is true. So we don't fully have access to them either, unless there are exceptions granted. And as for the afterlife, this is an entirely different realm, entirely different dimension, entirely different world in which we move and for it to happen there is a complete seizure, a complete stop of to this world, a complete in fact destruction, annihilation of this world and then we are recreated into the world that we refer to as the hereafter or the afterlife and the beginning of which happens to be Yom Al-Qiyamah. If we want it to be a lot more detailed, now we're, as we've said continuously and repeatedly, this is all simply to provide an overview of all of this. We're not going into the details of these matters. Otherwise, if we really wanted to be more accurate, we would say that Adam al-Barzakh itself is made up of multiple chapters. Adam al-Akhara also is made up of multiple chapters. So, Adam al-Akhara, Adam al-Akhara is not all one thing. Clearly, Yawm Al-Qiyamah, as we will start to see, to see uh, today and inshallah the next times, Yawm Al-Qiyamah itself could be considered a world made up of smaller worlds, smaller chapters, smaller milestones. And each one of these could be explored on its own to see what exactly is happening. When in the narrations we are told that the day of judgment, Yawm Al-Qiyamah, is of 50,000 years, this may be a completely uh, independent type of existence made up of chapters, milestones. For instance, for instance, we have narrations that say, well, when people pass on the path of Sirat, they in the in some narrations we are told that this phase on its own is three thousand years. So this could be considered an existence on its own, a world on its own called a Sirat. And then we have to go. This is why you see the importance given to explaining each one of these things in detail in our narrations. That each one of these has its own existence and means its own thing. But as we said, this would require a more extensive 
study for each one of these and more exploration, inshallah, in the future, we, we get the chance to do that. But for the time being, we're saying we're going through just providing a quick overview and we're really focusing on the verses of the Holy Quran, at least to understand what's in the Holy Quran about this. As for the details, they are usually contained in the uh, narrations or we would have to spend a lot more time providing a commentary on each one of these verses of the Quran about these topics. So we began by looking at what happens to our world, how, how this world comes to an end. And we said we're going to look at these big milestones as the world ceases to exist, stops existing for us. We began with the verses that have to do with the destruction of the earth on which we live, the planet on which we live, the mountains and the seas. And we said these are perhaps the things that we consider to be the most fixed and stable and solid as part of our existence on this world. And you see how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about them. He, he says about the, the seas, for instance, that they, were, they will all overflow, they will explode, and they will turn into fire. He talks about the mountains, that they will move, start moving very quickly, even though you would think that they were stable before. Now you see them moving very quickly, and then they are pulverized, they are, there's some sort of hitting, uh, or grinding that happens and they are pulverized into, depending on the verses and the phases of their destruction, they turn into sand, they turn into powder, uh, they turn into something similar to cotton, uh, and then they, they become uh, perhaps, uh, you know, cloudy or, or dusty air. So basically there's nothing left except an entirely and completely flat ground. Earth becomes just one flat ground as we saw. Allah subhanahu wa says, uh, that earth and the mountains become just one flattened ground. So something happens to it to make it into that. We talked about how the next, the next uh, chapter is perhaps even scarier and more difficult for human beings to imagine, which is what happens in the skies. So we are accustomed, humanity forever, for as long as we have existed, as Allah subhanahu wa says, you look up to the skies, Allah subhanahu wa says, we created these stars for you so that they may guide you, uh, especially in Vulumat al-Barri wal-Bah, at night when you are, you will be completely lost, especially for the millennia where human beings did not really have lights. It was a completely different world. And in that world, Allah subhanahu wa says, He put those stars for you to guide you. And so you need to rely on them. You are sure that they are there, they don't move out of place, and they become, they become your maps, especially when you're at sea or in the desert, and there's no way to tell where you are. These become your direction, these become your maps. Allah subhanahu wa starts saying how each one of these things that you consider to be stable and part of something that you have always known and relied on, that system entirely starts to get distorted and then destroyed. So there is a dimming or a destruction of the light of the moon and the sun. The moon and the sun collapse into each other after eclipses that happen. And then if you look at everything else in the skies, the skies are filled with stars. The Quran says they will be scattered and their lights will be dimmed. And so basically those things that we refer to as the trajectories of planets or of stars, they no longer exist. Nothing is following that same order. And then there's a description that is quite scary of the sky itself, of the heavens themselves. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that the, the heavens will be broken, will be cleft, uh, will be wrecked apart, 
portals will open into them. They will turn, the heavens will turn into a crimson red, uh, you know, flower looking thing. Uh, and all of this clearly tells us that the world as we know it is completely being destroyed. Even those things are, that are supposed to be even perhaps too big for our understanding to be destroyed. Stars and galaxies of stars and so on and so forth. And so inshallah all of this is, is clear and then we talked about the shout of death which the Holy Quran describes in, in many different ways. It refers to it as uh, you know a, a shout, a cry, a blast, uh, a very loud noise uh, and we'll go through some of those uh, verses today because we said there seems very clearly to be in the Holy Quran a reference to two shouts. One of them putting an end to all of life as we know it, and perhaps it goes even further than life, we don't know. It might put an end to existence, we don't know, but clearly to all life, except those that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to keep outside of that, the effect of that blast. And clearly this is mentioned. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says there will be except those that Allah wishes to keep out of that blast, the effect of that blast. And we read the verses of the Qur'an that talk about the shout of death and how it happens in some sort of instrument that the Holy Qur'an refers to uh, as a trumpet or a horn, uh, a sur, for instance, that we can imagine, again, maybe perhaps it doesn't look physically like a trumpet, but it performs that type of function. So what does a trumpet do? It, it serves to... Uh, you, you use it to amplify a sound, to, to blast a sound with it. And, you know, if we want to go a little bit deeper there, you know that sound is a movement of particles. If the sound is strong enough, you can destroy material things with it, right? You're actually moving particles in the air. So anyways, uh, clearly there is something happening that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to us when he gives us the image, he refers to it as a blowing and a trumpet or a horn. Okay, so this is what's happening to put an end to all living uh, entities except those which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to keep outside of the, uh, the effects of that blast. So I think we went through those verses. We don't need to, to repeat all of them. Um, we could add a lot more details here, but I, I don't want to spend too much time... Uh, on these, inshallah, we can uh, move along uh, today. We have a lot of narrations concerning what the trumpet even looks like. Uh, we have narrations from the Holy Prophet and from Imam Zayn al-Abidin that talk about the trumpet. The, the Holy Prophet says it is made up of light. It's made up of nur. And, uh, and on one extremity, it is in the heights of the heavens. And the other extremity is at the bottoms of the earth or the ground. Okay? Imam al-Sajjar when you combine those narrations together, he says that it doesn't have one opening. We would imagine a trumpet to have one opening. Imam al-Sajjar in, in the narration, he says, it has as many openings as there are living entities. So this basically tells us that when the blast happens, there is an intent that whatever effect is happening is being directed to every single existing living entity to be put to death or to cease to exist at that time. Okay, so that's how we need to understand it. Uh, and as we said, you know, except those who know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to keep out of that effect. There's multiple narrations on this one too. We have narrations that say that 
this is mainly talking about certain angels, close angels to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We know there are many, many categories of angels. We have the great angels that I think the majority of us have heard about. Uh, the archangels, uh, Jibra'il alayhi salam, Mika'il, Israfil, and Azra'il. These are the big four, the great angels of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who are directed with managing all the affairs of the universe. And so they have legions and armies of angels working for them. Okay, they give orders, they give commands, and they are responsible for certain things themselves. We also have different angels mentioned by the Imams. There are angels, uh, for instance, who are referred to as Al-Karubiyun or Karubiyin, referred to in, in multiple narrations. It, does, it is not clear to us what their roles are. They seem to be holding the universe in place and praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, along. We have other angels mentioned in the Holy Quran, the ones who are the carriers of the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. These angels don't seem to really be preoccupied by us or our existence or our universe. They are completely turned to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala except the angels carrying the throne. As surprising and awe-striking as that might be. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Ghafara, He says that those angels who carry the throne, they pray for the believers, asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive them, take them out of the punishment of hell, save them from the punishment of hell, and bring them and their families to heaven. So this is a prayer explicitly mentioned in the beginning of Surah Al-Ghafara about the angels carrying the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there are other narrations. So these are some of the examples mentioned on who may be the exception to the rule, which is when the blast happens, all living entities uh, move into non-existence or cease to live, cease to exist. In any case, so these are, I think, uh, inshallah, uh, relevant uh, details. Now we move to the parts that we haven't covered yet. The shout of the resurrection. So this is the second sayha. The first one was the one that puts an end to all living entities. This one is the one that happens to basically mark the beginning of the afterlife. When this blast happens, it's to raise all living entities back. And when they are raised, the Quran, as we will see, they suddenly find themselves in Yom Al-Qiyamah, the beginning of Yom Al-Qiyamah, which marks the very beginning of the our entrance into the afterlife. And so, when this uh, shout or cry or blast, the second one, happens, this is the beginning of an entirely new dimension, entirely new realm, entirely new existence. And the reason we're talking about all of this, to clearly establish this, is that, inshallah, when we're going to get into more details later on the relationship between this world and the next, or how does uh, our actions in this world, how do they translate into something in the afterlife, and so on and so forth, we need to understand that this is an entirely other world with its own laws, with its own system. It's a completely different system than the one we have here. So don't assume anything. Wait for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to explain to you what awaits us in the afterlife and how do things work there. Otherwise, there is no way for us to know. One of the things that are described as we enter that other world and what will be clear as soon as we enter into that other world is that the Quran says, the earth will shine with the light of its Lord. So inshallah we'll see how the verses describe all of this. But in short, and inshallah we're going to come back to that in later. Uh, but in short, what we're talking about here is that 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying there's multiple commentaries given to this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that his true power is going to be clear on that day for all of us to see. And inshallah, we're going to talk a little bit more about it when we look at the verses. And then the resurrection, once it happens, you have the rising back from the dead of all the creatures, all the live creatures, and we'll see that it's more than just the human beings, but the ones we should be concerned about are ourselves. And then all of this is not happening in phases. And so this is another distinction or a difference between that world and this world. In this world, clearly Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has emphasized again and again that He has created it in steps. There is some sort of evolution that happens to get to where we are today in this world. Everything in this world follows a certain causality, things that happen in time. Everything that's happening in the afterlife is happening in one instant. So there is no evolution, gradual development of anything. And again, this goes back to the idea that that is a world of truth. That is a world where you see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's attributes as they really are. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not go through the same type of layers upon layers of causality that we have in this world. And we're going to see how the Quran uses this notion of truth, al-haqq, again and again. And then, of course, as the creatures rise, as the human beings uh, run away, come out of their graves, there is a sort of confusion, there is a sort of scattering. The Holy Quran refers to them as Farash and as Jarad, uh, Ibil, in some, in some uh, uh, verses of the Quran. It's like these animals where they come in swarms. It's kind of scattered, but it's all moving towards one very clear purpose. Because they're, they're all obeying a call. They're all obeying very clear instructions, which is you are now going to stand for trial. You are going to be put on trial for every deed, for every thought, for every intention. You did, you didn't do, you were supposed to do. This is where it's all going to happen. And then, of course, this is where we also have verses of the Quran reminding us, showing us how quickly this whole world of ours that we sometimes think this is all there is, how ephemeral and how temporal and how frail it is and how quickly it passes that when finally those people rise for the afterlife, they ask each other and many of them have the impression that they have only existed for an hour or a day or part of a day or a few hours of a day. And they will clearly say that as we will see in the verses of the Quran. And so... This is also a reminder to us that don't give more importance to this world than you need to because this is how quickly it will pass and it's difficult to see when you're in it. But I think we all know what it means when you're going through something and you feel that it's long and then you think about it later and you see that that thing that seemed to be so long now is an instant in your memory and you remember, you know, days or weeks or months or years in this way. And so this whole life, and we include the life of the Barzakh in it, will seem like it is but a glimpse in your memory as you get into the afterlife. So let's look at the verses of the Quran that talk about these parts. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, There is no creature that crawls upon the earth, nor bird that flies upon its wings, but they are all communities like yourselves. We have not, we have neglected nothing in the book, then they shall be gathered toward the Lord. So this is, we have an instance here where the Holy Quran is clearly saying they're all going to be gathered to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All these umam, not only your umam, O human beings, 
all of these. All the dawab, all the, uh, the, the animals that fly, all the animals that are on land, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and who knows what else, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, these are all communities, they are all like yours, and they will all be gathered to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then the trumpet will be blown. And so now this is where we're starting to talk specifically about this shout. Then the trumpet will be blown. This is the day which you were warned. And so the reason why I highlighted it here or underlined it in a couple of these verses is to clearly demark there is a blowing or a blast or a trumpet call, shout, uh, cry that's happening that is different from the first one. Now we are in a different place where whereas in the first verses that we saw they're clearly putting an end to the world these are clearly talking about another day which is Yom Al-Qiyamah so then the trumpet will be blown this is the day of which you were warned and in another verse when the trumpet will be sounded that day will be a day of hardship so again that is going to be a day of hardship so Yom Al-Qiyamah with no ease at all for for the disbelievers and I mean, there's a lot that can be said here. Uh, I was writing it and I, and I wrote some verses in Arabic, especially for those uh, who are interested in, in uh, hearing the Arabic terminology around these verses. There is so much, we could spend a whole lecture or more just talking about this one verse. How the Holy Quran here uses a term that it doesn't use elsewhere. Elsewhere, the Holy Quran often refers to, there's of course the Sayha uh, or Zajr, uh, or, 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 there's a, a number of uh, different terms that it uses, and it also uses the instrument, which is a sur, for instance. Here the Quran uses another one. It says, So here there's a whole, you know, exploration that we can do. Why does the Holy Quran talk about the nahur here? In Arabic, nahur can be used in the same way as you would use trumpet or horn. Is it simply just a... Uh, a, a a synonym that the Holy Quran is using, and you can just use them interchangeably, most likely because we know the uh, accuracy, the precision of the Quranic terminology, there has to be reasons. And so very quickly I thought, what comes to mind when you think about Naqur and Naqr, and how it's used in Arabic? Naqr is, is the same uh, root uh, term, term, or the same root from which you have Manqar, for instance, the beak of a bird. And so you have the movement of a, that a bird does when it's eating. How would you describe it? Or we have certain narrations, for instance, that talk about people who pray very quickly. They're referred to as someone who's يَنْقُرُ نَقْرَ or يَنْقُرُ نَقْرَ الْغْرَابِ or يَنْقُرُ نَقْرَ الْطَيْرِ Okay, in some different narrations. So what do you get from this? First of all, there is a quick, or uh, there's speed in the movement. Okay, there's a fast Something fast is happening. So while you keep in mind the instrument, it's not really the shape or... That's why I'm trying to get you out of thinking that it has to be a trumpet, a material physical trumpet. It's think more about the function that it performs and why would how the Holy Quran uses these terms because they perform the same function. And then you can apply these to anything else. You can apply them to kitab and qalam and ruh and, and lawah and so on and so forth. Okay, so... When the whole Quran says, this trumpet that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to, first of all, if it's naqr, then there's speed, there's sound, there's precision. So when the bird goes for the seed, for instance, to, to, to eat it, there's it's a very precise movement. He goes specifically for that seed. 
we have narrations that use that that uh, that terminology. We we are in the days of the Fatimiyah these days. We have narrations that Fatima This is how she will use her intercession to pick out her followers and the Shia in that way as the bird picks out the seeds. So this is a reference to the precision in the movement. So this naqul, when it happens, it's not just kind of an overall blast, that's what I'm trying to say, that just destroys the whole world. This is very precise, accurate, it's going for the people. Entities with a life in them that are being aimed at, there's an objective and it's not missing the objective. It happens quickly, suddenly, precisely, right? And there is a sort of a destruction happening through noise or sound or something like that. In any case. And then, clearly there was a day. But then it says, the day is a day of hardship. That day, in general, is a day of hardship. So this applies, should apply to everyone. But then it adds, it says, with no ease at all for the disbelievers. Why? So it's almost like it's saying sometimes the day could be difficult. In general, we all could be experiencing a day of severe heat, a day, a day of difficulty. It doesn't mean that we are all experiencing the heat in the same way. Some of us may have access to an air-conditioned house. And so we go and we're not included in the hardship of that day. But there are people, for sure they will be included and they will be experiencing those hardships in their worst form. And for the disbelievers, not at all easy. And so this is where you see the, the descriptions of the Holy Quran and how accurate it is. The day itself is a very difficult day, but depending on who you are and how well you've done until now, you may be saved. You may be of those who are the exception, as Allah SWT has said again and again. There are people who will never be included in Al-Faza' Al-Akbar, the greater fear that will overtake everyone, does not include some people. Why? Because they were good. As we said, Allah SWT has made their hearts serene, peaceful, ready for whatever comes. He fills them with peace and they are not included in this fear. Okay? And so this all depends on what is happening, what you have brought with you when you get there, how ready you are when you get there. And of course we can add here, as we said, by the time you reach Yom Al-Qiyamah, this might be one more phase where Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala is using this fear and these milestones as people are going through them to further purify people so that by the time they enter heaven, finally, they have been fully purified and there's no need for them to undergo anything else. Okay, inshallah, this will become useful later. In another verse, it says, The day they hear the cry in all truth. So keep, keep the notion of truth in mind. It's going to be recurrent. The day they hear the cry in all truth, that is the day of rising. So again, very clearly, we're talking about Yom al Qiyamah, and we're being, see, each verse is adding something new. In another verse, yet it will be but a single accusing shout. So when you yell at someone, but you're also accusing them or blaming them or reprimanding them. So that's how the shout is, is described. Yet it will be but a single accusing shout. And behold, they will be on a sahara, as the Quran says. So here one, one way I translated it. Behold, they will be on the one that keeps awake. 
So most likely this is a description, as we have in certain narrations, of the ground on which people will stand in the afterlife, in Yom Al-Qiyamah. That ground is a ground where no one will be, will have the luxury of ever sleeping or resting. So you are Saharan. So, فَإِذَاهُمْ بِالسَّاهِرَةِ It's one call, and then suddenly they find themselves on that land. There are some commentators that say that this is a reference to Yom Al-Qiyamah itself. Or, we have, as we said in the narrations, this is a ground, the actual land on which we are standing as we undergo the early stages of Yom Al-Qiyamah. In any case, and so here, see, again, it was not described as Sayha, it was described as Zajla. Before, it was Nukhila Finnafur, and so on and so forth. Each one of these adds a new component. And the trumpet will be blown, and we shall gather them all together in Surah Al-Kahf. And here there is a reference, perhaps, that this is where we said there is a type of gathering where you are individually looked at. And there is another type of gathering where you're looked at as part of a group. So here you have a reference to the group. There are groups here, and we're going to see more references to the groups. The day the trumpet will be blown, and you will come in hoarded groups. Surat Afwaja. The day the earth is transformed into another earth. And so this is where we're starting to see that this is a completely different world. The day the earth, so the heavens too are going to be completely changed into another set of heavens. They're made to appear, they're made to be presented, exposed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the one, the overpowering. So the day the earth is transformed into another earth and the heavens as well, and they are presented before Allah, the one, the overpowering. And then in Surah Al-Zumar, these are famous verses in Surah Al-Zumar, it would require a lengthy discussion, but very quickly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, they did not measure God with his true measure. مَا قَدَرُ اللَّهَ حَقَّ قَدْرَهِ The entire earth shall be in his fist on the day of the resurrection. وَالْأَرْضُ جَمِيعًا قَبْضَتُهُ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ folded up, scrolled up, in his hand, or in his right hand. Subhanahu wa ta'ala, amma yushrikun, immaculate is he, exalted above having partners as they describe. And the trumpet will be blown. So you got a first description in Surah Zumar, you got a first description of what just happened to the world, and then the trumpet will be blown. So the new world just came into existence, and the trumpet will be blown, and whoever is in the heavens and on the earth, will swoon, except whomever God wishes. This is the first blowing, right? So, So this is the part we described until now. Except whomever God wishes, then it will be blown a second time. Then it will be blown a second time, and below, behold, they are all up looking. So the getting up and the rising happens very quickly. And the earth will shine with the light of her Lord. And so here, there's all sorts of theories mentioned by the commentators of what this means. Some have said, for instance, that, you know, this is when the divine justice will become a lot clearer. And But bottom line is, 
It's the main attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and we're going to talk about it more. Those attributes that everything belongs to Allah. In this world, we fail to see that because we keep looking at the causes that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes the world function through. In that world, none of these are there. There's a complete cutting off of cutting off of all ties. All that's left is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so when Allah, this is a second earth, as we said, to This is the earth has been transformed into another earth. That other earth is now shining with the light of its Lord. Does it mean that this earth is not shining with the light of its Lord? No, but we don't see it. In that world, we are going to see what that means, which is the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to be directly felt, directly experienced. You don't understand it with theory like we're talking right now and trying to understand with reason and logical arguments. And You see the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You experience the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's a completely different world in that sense. That's the meaning of Ashraqat al-Ardu binuri rabbiha. And the book will be set up. There are multiple books mentioned in the whole Quran. There are individual books. So each one of us has their book, their register. And then there are books for the Ummah. And there are verses of the Quran that talk about that. And then there seems to be the book. The big book that contains it all. And this verse is talking about that one. And so it says, And this is when the book will be set. So everything is contained in it. And we're going to come to the function of this later. And the book will be set up, and the prophets and the witnesses. Usually this is translated as the martyrs. When we talk, the manner in which we talk, we refer to people who have sacrificed their lives for the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to save other people and so on and so forth. When you sacrifice your soul for a noble cause, you're referred to as a martyr. But the Holy Quran does not really refer to it in this specific way. This is a secondary meaning. The real meaning of shaheed in the Quran used again and again is that you're a witness. And of course, someone who has been killed wrongly is going to be a shaheed they are going to bear witness to what happened to them and what was happening and what, why this happened and so on and so forth. But it's in this sense that they are a witness. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, now this is the link between why these people are being brought, why the prophets are being brought and the witnesses, because the prophets are witnesses. And they are performing a role associated with the book, which is to, that says this is what happened and this is what people did. And then you have the witnesses who come and corroborate this will be brought and the witnesses will be brought and judgment will be made between them in truth and they will not be wronged in Surah Al-Zumar. The matter of the hour, and though this is a reference to the speed, we refer to the speed, right? That this is all happening at once, not through phases. The matter of the hour is just like the twinkling of an eye, the blinking of an eye. Even faster than that, even swifter. Indeed, Allah has power over all things in Surah Al-Nahl. Or, and our command is but one, like the twinkling of an eye, or the blinking of an eye. Surah, al, uh, Surah Al-Qamar. وَمَا أَمْرُنَا إِلَّا وَاحِدَةٌ كَلَمْحٍ بِالْبَصَرِ The day when they emerge, inshallah the internet is still working, the day when they emerge from the graves, hastening, as if racing toward a target. 
يخرجون من الأجداد سراعا كأنهم إلى نصب يوفضون. There's a it's almost like there's a target at the end of a race that you're trying to reach. They're all rushing towards something. And on the day the hour is come, the guilty will swear that they had remained but an hour. And another verse, on the day he will gather them, it will be as if they had remained, not remained, except for an hour of the day, getting acquainted with one another. They are certainly losers, those who deny the encounter with Allah, and they are not guided. Okay, so there's... Uh, another verse in Surah Taha, they're whispering to each other, how long do you think we were there? One of them will say, you know, we were there for maybe 10 days or less. Another will say, it was less, maybe it was just one day or part of a day. So this is all to, again, emphasize that point that it's a temporal world passing by very quickly and we will feel that in the afterlife. The second milestone, now that the rising has happened, now we have moved to the the details related to what we meant when we said This is where you start to see the governance, the dominion, the sovereignty, the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at play directly and experientially, existentially, not theoretically, as we see in this world right now. When we try to walk back through the causes and get to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through reason, there you will experience it, experience that directly because that's the type of world it is. So, as we saw and as we will see in the next verses, that is a world of truth. And that's one of its most important meanings, but this is going to be very important later on too. When we try to understand the relationship between this world, which is a world of lies, but also a world of artificial relationships. Things that you don't really own, but you have a feeling that you own them like wealth and family members, the only thing you own, the only thing that really belongs to you and for which there is a real relationship between you and that thing is your action and the intention with that action. And that is it. Everything else is an imposed, artificial relationship that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in place, but all of these relationships disappear in the afterlife. Okay, so that's what we mean. So in the afterlife, you will experience that very directly and clearly, that there is nothing else left. Nothing can have an effect on anything else except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so that sight and that those circumstances are going to be overwhelming. No one will dare to talk. There will only be whispers, as the Surah Taha is going to say. And every human being is going to be fully and entirely absorbed with their own preoccupied with their own self and with their own situation with their own circumstances. No one will really care about their children or their siblings or their parents or their friends or anyone else. Okay? So that's how, and you can imagine, we go through situations like this in our lives. If suddenly, Allah, you find yourself in a place, let's say there's 10 people in, in an elevator and it explodes or something happens, in that moment when that thing, the accident is happening, you're only thinking about your own survival. In that instant, you're not thinking about saving anyone else. That may come after. But your survival instinct kicks in and you try to save yourself. You forget for that instant that there's anyone else. And some people just stay in that mode for a very long time after. And there are people who can pull themselves out of it very quickly. Well, if you can imagine, this is what's happening continuously and only you're in that state in the afterlife, in Yom al You are entirely and completely preoccupied and absorbed 
in your own preoccupations, in your own circumstances. The false relations of this world will become an enmity. So those things, those things that you call a relationship in this world, if they are not built on the truth that we refer to at the beginning of the slide, we said it's a world of truth, then in the afterlife, those relationships cease, and in fact, they become hatred. You're going to hate having had that relationship because it just adds to your burden. It just makes things worse for you having had that relationship, no matter what it is with, who it is with. If that relationship was not built on the truth, this haq, this notion of haq, and the ultimate truth is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and things that you associate back to Allah, then all of that will turn into enmity and hatred. That's the ultimate end of these false relationships. And then for every human being there, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, everybody's feeling guilt and everybody's feeling regret. And of course, this applies to those who rejected the truth, who denied Allah, who said these are not miracles, who fought Allah and his prophets and the imams and all of that. That's clear. But this actually applies to everyone. This applies to all of us too. Everyone who happens to get there and you start understanding things as they are, you may understand them here in theory. But over there, you're witnessing and experiencing those realities. When you get there, of course, you're going to wish that you hadn't done more. Of course, there's going to be regret. No one is going to be spared the regret. Who amongst us can say, you know, I have not wasted a moment here or money there or an effort here, an energy there that I could have used for more good? Well, all of that is going to come back to haunt us in the afterlife. So that especially when you see, and this is something that you feel from certain verses in the Quran, especially when you see and, and encounter people that you knew in this world, and the Quran refers to this hasra happening there. People that you thought maybe are at the same level and suddenly you see they're a lot better than you. And what was the difference? Especially in cases where you know you have more opportunity than them. You may have more money or more health or more lifetime or better circumstances or whatever it may be that you could have used and yet you see that they did better than you. They may have had a shorter life and more difficult circumstances and, and, and. And yet they did so much better than you. Of course you're going to feel regret. Even if you end up in heaven, when you're going to see the other, other degrees of heaven to which you do not have access to, and others, this is their home, you're going to feel that there is regret. You're going to feel like there were wasted opportunities. So you regret that. And that's why it's referred to as Yawm al-Hasra. It's a day of regret. And that includes everyone, except those who can safely say, I really did everything I could and there's nothing else I could have done to be better, to come in more ready for that day. And so the verses of the Quran that have to do with this, on the day when the secrets are laid bare. And this is a reference to, as we said, it's the world of truth. Okay? So the world of truth, you can't conceal anything. When you pray in this world, when I pray in this world, I can show the best prayer in external appearance, and that's all anyone can see. No one really knows where my mind is, where my sincerity is, how connected I am to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when I perform my fast, when I read Quran, when I give charity, when I help someone. What's the intention behind it? What are my thoughts? What are my desires? What do I think about? What do I scheme? What do I conspire? All of this remains inside. All of this remains hidden, but it's part of us. And all of this is laid bare. Of course, there are exceptions, and inshallah, we're going to come to those exceptions. When you are good, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
hides away anything that you might find embarrassing and shameful in the afterlife. And this is in fact a recurrent theme in our prayers. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not to embarrass us in the afterlife. So if you look at verses like these, it's clear that this is the general rule, that there is nothing hidden in the afterlife. This world is based on things hidden and only having access to external appearances. In that world, everything is built on truth. There is nothing hidden. Everything is laid bare. And so the Qur'an makes sure to repeat this again and again. On the day when the secrets are laid bare. In Surah Al-Adiyat, Okay, so whatever is in the hearts, whatever is in the chests, is going to be taken and accounted for. Right? Does he not know when what is in the graves is turned over and that which is in the chests is divulged? And then in Surah Al-Haqqah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, On that day, you are going to be exposed. None of your secrets will remain hidden. Scary words when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying it in this way and in this tone. You know, in case there is doubt. He repeats it, the same terminology, and that structure has, it's a very strong structure in Arabic. In any case, in Surah Al-Taghabun, Now this is more about this idea of feeling regret because there's, there are people who are going to win and there are people who are going to lose. There's a transaction here. And so the day when he will gather you for the day of gathering, that will be a day of dispossession. So when there are people who say, you know, I have nothing to do with this or neglect, you know, you want to ignore things and, and, and neglect them and say, you know, uh, I'm not responsible, I don't know so-and-so, this, this was not mine. And of course, there is a winning and losing. So all of this is included in the word tababun. Again, so you see again and again, the Quran talks about this uh, idea of being exposed uh, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The day when they will emerge, nothing about them will be hidden from Allah. To whom does the sovereignty belong today? So this is, this is a rhetorical question, but it's also a real question in the sense that Allah subhanahu wa may ask, as we said, and answer it himself. And this is the answer to what we, what we, what the Quran means when it says, Right? So when it says, to whom does the sovereignty belong today? To Allah, the one, the overpowering. And so the Hajj on that day, all sovereignty will belong to Allah. He will judge between them. Again, in Surah Al-Furqan, on that day, true sovereignty will belong to the all beneficent, and it will be a hard day for the disbelievers. In uh, chapter 82, it is a day when no soul will be of any avail to another soul. Okay, and all command that day will belong to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So no one can help anyone, no one can be of any use to anyone. The day it arrives, when it arrives, the hour arrives, no one shall speak except by his permission. So this is the other idea that we said, there's kind of an overwhelming feeling. There's absolutely nothing being said except if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants permission. And when there is talking, it's as though it's being whispered. It's murmurs, as we have in Surah Baha. On that day, they shall follow the summoner. Okay, so there's someone summoning them, someone calling them, inviting them, and they follow. And this could be 
an actual call and it could be existential. You have no choice but to follow. You're being driven towards something. There is no deviance again and deviousness because this is truth. On that day they shall follow the summoner in whom there will be no deviousness. And then that the voices will be muted before the merciful. And you will hear nothing but murmurs. And then all faces shall be humbled before the living one, the sustainer, and he will fail the one burdened with wrongdoing. Okay, so all of these verses, they come and explain what we meant when we said, On the day the spirit and the angels in Surah Al-Nabat, On the day the spirit and the angels stand in rows, none shall speak except one whom the merciful grants permission and who says what is right. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has completely, you can't just talk. Okay, so this is why you're, and, and there's a, a reason why, yes, again, we're mentioning all these verses. Each one of them is adding something new. And these verses, if you can imagine, these most powerful of the creatures, the ones that we said are managing the affairs of the universe, and those verses were said, were being told, they are just standing there in rows, and you see them, they are all standing, and none shall speak except one to whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the merciful, grants permission and who says what is right. Again, because it's a day of truth. So you can't say anything that is a lie, even if you wanted to. And when the trumpet is blown, there will be no family ties between them on that day, nor will they ask about each other. And no one will be asking about anyone else on that day. The day when neither wealth nor children will, will avail. So this is the cutting of ties, right? We're saying the only dominion, the only sovereignty, the only effect, the only relationship that remains in effect is that of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Our relationships are completely cut off. That's why I'm mentioning the verses. So you're seeing that there's no more family ties and then it goes further. O humankind, be wary of your Lord and fear the day when a parent shall not atone for their child which is almost unimaginable in this world. Nor the child atone for their parent in any way. God's promise is true. So do not let the life of this world delude you. And do not let the deceiver, so in the narrations we're told the deceiver here, is Iblis, Shaitan. Nor let the deceiver delude you about Allah. So it's not the ghurur, it's not the deception, it's the, it's the one who deceives. In Surah Abasa, the day when man will flee from his brother, the day when man will flee from his brother and his father and his spouse and his children, it's not that he cannot help them. The verse says he will flee from them. He will run away so that there is no association between the, him and anyone else in case this may be of a, a, a harmful effect to him. So no one is concerned and every one of them has too much stuff that preoccupies him and concerns him to worry about anyone else. That day each of them will have a matter of keeping them preoccupied. And then Surah Zukhruf on that day, friends will be one another's enemies except for the pious.
So again, the day of truth. If your relationship was built on truth, on piety, then you will have a friendship that lasts into the afterlife. If it's not, then it turns into enmity. It turns into hatred. It turns into something harmful. Al-Akhillah are very good friends. People who spend a lot of time together. You, you, so if you think about one, you think about the other. They're always together. Okay? So intimate friends. There's no friendship. That any friendship in this world ceases, except unless it was built on taqwa. It was built on God-fearing. It was a relationship in God and through God. Then that's a relationship in truth. Okay? And in Surah Al-Ma'arij, Al-Hameem, again, is someone who is very, very close to someone else. Right? And so the Quran says, and no intimate friend will inquire about their intimate friend. They're made to see, you see each other, but you, you don't talk to each other. See? Not all relationships, the ones where there is guilt, where there is crime, where there is sin, those are going to be the ones that are problematic. So not everybody is running away from their spouse and their children and their parents. And this, this verse makes it clear. The guilty one, Al-Mujrim in Surah Al-Ma'arij, the guilty one will wish he could ransom himself from the punishment of that day at the price of his children and his wife and his brother and the nearest of his kinsfolk, those people of his family and tribe who had sheltered him, those that they used to provide him a ma'wa to give him a shelter, and all those who are upon the earth if that might deliver him. He's willing to sacrifice every human being on earth if it means that he's going to be rescued. And he will try and he will ask for that. But of course, it will be of no avail. And the answer is Kalla. And Maybe we can stop after this together. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Ibrahim, Together they will be presented before Allah. Then those who are weak will say to those who are arrogant. And so here we have verses where you have a human being preoccupied with himself. Here you have groups. And now they're talking to each other. Then those who are weak will say to those who were arrogant or those who are in power over them. Indeed, we were your followers. So will you avail us against Allah's punishment in any way? In other words, we committed a lot of sins because of you, because we were following you, because we were emulating and imitating you, because we were your fans and your followers. Will you avail us against Allah's punishment in any way? They will say, had Allah guided us, surely we would have guided you. So it is the same to us, whether we are restless or patient, there is no escape for us. And of course, in short, no, we can't help you, and you know, don't don't bother us right now. Okay? And in uh, Surah Al-Baqarah, the same the same type of uh, concept, when those who are followed will disown or declare themselves innocent from those who were followers, their followers, when they will cite the punishment and all their means of recourse will have been cut off. 
And that when the followers will say, had there been another turn for us, so we would disown them as they disown us. You see the, the regret that they wish they could do the same harm to them. There is a psychological harm here that they wish they could inflict on those they were following. Because this is the last kind of straw, the last point, that one more thing that could hurt, and that's exactly what's happening. In that moment, they're, they're saying, we were your followers. But the ones who were followed, they will say, we have nothing to do with them. We disown them. We did not ask them. We did not force them to follow us. They just decided to follow us. So they wish they could return to this world. They wish that they had another karma, as the Quran says, another turn to come back to this world just so that they could do the same thing to those who were being followed. So that they could say, we disown them. In any case, in the Surah Al-An'am, chapter 631, they are certainly losers, those who deny the encounter with Allah. When the hour overtakes them suddenly, they will say, alas for us, for what we neglected in our duty towards Allah, or towards it, towards the hour, and they shall bear the burdens on their backs. Look how evil is that which they bear. Keep these notions in mind, we're going to come back to them, inshallah, later, this idea of carrying your burdens on your back. In uh, 5021, so this is Surah Qaf, then every soul will come, accompanied by a driver and a witness. You were oblivious, the person you will be told, you were oblivious of this, we have removed your veil from you, and so your sight is metal sharp. One driving it, and one bearing witness over it. Okay, and there are others. This, in this verse, those two are described. And then you're told what you're seeing now is different from what you would see in the world. What's your, what you're seeing is the truth now, because this is a day of truth. And the difference, to keep in mind for now, we're not going to explain it. The only difference, the verse says, is that we have removed the covering from over your eyes, from over your sight. So now your sight, your vision, your eyes are metal sharp. Right? So, what is happening? We'll see that, inshallah, when we talk about it. And then in Surah Maryam, warn them of the day of regret. This is Yawm al-Hasra. When the matter will have been decided, but they were heedless, and they would not believe. So I think I'm going to stop here so that we don't, uh, we don't extend too much. The next topic would require uh, a few more minutes to finish. So let's stop here and inshallah we continue. So this was all a description of the living creatures, the living entities being brought back to life through the second shout. They are witnessing the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they are moving initially towards that land, that ground where they are going to be judged, they're going to be assessed. And we said this is going to be a very fair tribunal, but it has not started yet. We haven't talked about it. And then there's going to be, very clearly, as all this is happening, very clearly they will see that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the only true God, the only true cause, the only one with true sovereignty, dominion, power, knowledge, effect, which is the case right now, but we don't see it because we're too distracted. And so this is what the Qur'an says will be one of the main differences between this world and the next. But that's why this world has to be the test. Because if everything is that clear, then there is no test. 
If you are witnessing the power of Allah, the knowledge of Allah, the sovereignty of Allah, then you are in the afterlife. It's when you are not seeing it directly and you have to work, you have to work your intelligence and your reason and your logic and your humanity to move towards that. That is the test and that is the whole purpose of this world. Okay, so inshallah we'll continue with all of this inshallah is clear so we won't spend too much time on this and then we'll talk about the actual tribunal, the actual judging of the uh, you know, deeds and, and uh, actions and intentions of human beings. This will be followed by as people are taken to their final resting place, their final abode and then we'll talk a little bit about paradise itself and hell itself. And with that we will conclude inshallah. So we'll try to cover all of that next time inshallah if we can or maybe two more lectures and we'll cover all of the big milestones for Yom Al-Qiyamah inshallah and then we'll start talking about the relationship between this world and the next and we have a lot to say there. Okay, so let's stop here. If there are any questions, concerns, comments about anything we said, please don't hesitate. It could be about anything we've covered or remotely related to the topic first. If not, then anything else, that's okay too. And of course, this goes for brothers and sisters who are with us online, Zoom or Facebook, if you have any questions, concerns. As we said for a couple of times now that, you know, uh, cognitively or, or theoretically, there's not a lot of complexity to what we're describing. The point here is to absorb as much as possible so that it has some sort of incidence and effect and repercussion on how we are and how we think and how we view our place in this world and our relationship with this world and with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and remind ourselves that there is death and there is after death and there is an afterlife so we need to prepare that's the bottom line yeah um, last week you asked me to remind you uh, about Imam Ali's sermon 220 inshallah yes, yes. So this, so as soon as we're done these, I think it's going to be a good place. So let's finish the description so that we don't interrupt it. Let's finish the description of the milestones. And I'm not forgetting, but yeah, do keep remind me just in case. But as soon as we, we're done these, inshallah, we, it, and it is linked to these two. So it's a good place to, to put it, or you know, we can even put it later. Uh, all these topics are, are overlapping and interconnected. But yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Thank you. Um, okay, so maybe very quickly the uh, so there's um, maybe very quickly one announcement to make. Uh, I, I was debating. Uh, I saw earlier. I didn't have it in mind, but I, I was leaving the house and I was looking at the calendar and I saw. Um, these days happen to be the death anniversary of uh, a man who by all accounts is certainly a saint. The son of Imam al-Kawm by the name of Al-Qasim. Imam al-Kawm, the seventh Imam, had many children, 36 or 37, and one of them was Al-Qasim, Ibn al-Kawm, Ibn Musa al-Kawm. And 
talking about him would certainly deserve a, a good lecture, uh, maybe in two, three minutes, just at least so that we mention him. And I think it's one more person that we ought to know, we should know about him, and we probably don't hear very much about him. Um, but very quickly again. Um, so this is someone that is mentioned in our Ruayat. So as we said last time, before we jump into kind of idolizing someone and considering them a saint and sacred, we want to make sure that we have something that validates this. So we are looking at their conduct, we're looking at their biography, we're looking at the, how they carry themselves, but we need a reassurance. And this is for us, it comes from our Imams. We need something from the Imams that tells us that this is in fact someone who is special and someone who needs to be idolized. So that if you follow them, they're not going to lead you in all sorts of, you know, wrong places. So this is certainly something that we have in the case of uh, Al-Qasim um, And generally speaking, we have a narration even from his, his uh, father, Imam Al-Qasim that says that one of his companions had come to visit him. And he starts explaining to the man that clearly the Imam after him is going to be Fulan. The narration actually says Fulan, so so and so. And this is typical of the narrations that were said at that time with Imam al the Imma in general because they wanted to protect the lives of the Imams. So they would not necessarily say, and this one is the Imam. And this becomes clearer, especially if you know like someone like Imam al-Ridha has a lot of sons. And from those sons, many of them were amazing people. So it would not always be very clear to everyone that this is in fact the Imam or that is the Imam. That's not always clear. And so the Imam needs to say it's so-and-so or not. Those who are close to the Imams, the followers of the Imams, they know. But those who are not, let's say the governments who are in a, in a relationship of enmity with the Bayt for instance, they are not always necessarily going to know which one of the sons of an Imam is the Imam. To which, especially when the Imam has not passed away yet. So they could, they would get rid of the son as well right away, but usually the Imams hide this. So we have a narration from Imam al-Kawm when this companion of his, when he comes to visit him and he talks to him, he tells him, he tells him that the, my, the one of my sons to whom I have you know, left my uh, legacy and to whom I have given my instructions in so-and-so, in reference to Imam Rada But he says, if it were up to me, I would have chosen Al-Qasim in this narration. And this, of course, is not to take anything away from Imam Rada This is to highlight the position of Al-Qasim. But then he adds, he says, but Imam is not something that anyone can choose. And so there's another lesson from Imam al-Kabbalah. He says, the Imam is a divine appointment and Allah has divinely appointed. Okay? But this is to highlight the position of Al-Qasim. Al-Qasim was the youngest of the children of Imam al-Kabbalah. He loved him very much in the Rayat. He cared for him, he took care of him, and he knew that he was very special. So if we fast forward, I promise you a couple of minutes. If we fast forward, so what happened in the time of Imam al-Kawm Imam al spent the majority of his life in jail. And at the end he was 
killed in jail. Poison was given to him in jail and he passed away in jail. At that same time as the Imam was killed, they attacked the houses of Bani Hashim in Al-Madinah. The Imam was killed by Harun al-Rashid in his, in his prisons, in his jails in Iraq. But they also were attacking the houses of Al-Madinah and the houses of the Imam in, in Iraq where he lived and where some of his family members lived. One of those people who ran away, the children of Muhammad ran away all over the world. In fact, if it's kind of impossible to follow where they went. But if anyone really follows the trajectory of some of them, you start understanding how we have so many Sayyids from the lineage of Muhammad who are from India and Pakistan, Afghanistan, and regions that are not very close to where the Imams lived. Why? Because their sons had to escape, had to run away and go very far in order to secure their presence in that world. And one of them was Al-Qasim. So Al-Qasim did not go very far. He still left. He's left the, the, uh, the area where, uh, in which he was. We're told that he just followed the trajectory of the Euphrates, the Frat. And at some point, he finally found two little girls playing with each other. And one of them was telling the other something, and the other is not believing it. So she swore. She swore as in, you know, gave an oath. And she swore by the emir, by the prince. So this attracted his attention. He came to them and he asked them, who are you talking about? And from, you know, the, I'll spare you the details of the story. They're very beautiful how they spoke very two very small young girls. Uh, and they refer to the one who is mentioned in Al-Hadir. So they're talking about Imam Ali So he knew that they are Shia. And so he asked them, can you take me to your father? Or the tribe, can you take me to the chief of your tribe or your chief of your family? And she told him, yes, it's my father. And he followed them and he went with them. And so when he got there, the, the traditions of the Arabs, you don't ask someone who's coming over who needs a place to be sheltered. You don't ask them any details. You just shelter them. And so he was sheltered for three days. And then the man himself, Al-Qasim, came to the chief of that tribe, of that family, and he told him, I've heard from those who have heard from the Holy Prophet that uh, the hospitality only lasts three days. And after that, you may feed the person from charity, from sadaqat. And I'm not someone who takes sadaqat. So why don't you find me a job, something to do amongst your people? I would like to stay here longer. And so the, the, that man offered him a number of jobs. He said, these are not suitable for me. Uh, at the end, he proposed something. He told him, allow me to bring water to your people. And so the imam, the, that man finally accepted. So his job, Al-Qasim, became to go to the river and get the water and bring it to these people. And this went on for a while. And the man was living very well and he was keeping to himself and he's a very good person. But he kept to himself until one day that same man, the, the chief of the, the tribe, uh, at night he came out and he saw him praying. And the prayer was not a normal prayer. There are people who pray, but this was not a normal prayer. He says that I saw his face with full of light going to the heavens. And the manner in which he prays is not a regular prayer. So he came back to his people and told them, I know that this is a stranger the next days. I know this is a stranger. We don't know him. But this is the type of worship I saw from him. I really like this man. I would like to offer him one of my daughters in marriage. Do you agree? 
that they told him, of course, you're, you're the chief and we respect your decision and it's your family and we don't have any objections to that. And so he married the daughter of that man and he continued to live with them for a little while until he got very, very sick. And so the chief of that tribe felt that this man is about to die. He was about 42 or 43 years old, very young. And so he came to him and he told him, we've never really asked you who you are. We didn't insist on knowing. But if you die, if something were to happen to you, we need to know what to do with your daughter. It's customary. This is, uh, you know, in Islamic societies that the family of the father are going to take care of the children. We want to know who to approach and who to talk to. And so he didn't answer right away. He started explaining that he is from Quraysh, from Bani Hashim. And then finally he said, I am the son of Musa al-Kawam, Imam al-Kawam And so that, that man became extremely embarrassed and humiliated. And so he ran outside and he told them, you know, how embarrassing for us, woe and shame upon us that we've had this man, the son of Imam al-Kawam with us all this time and we did not know. And so Al-Qasim told him, don't worry, you are good people and you are so going to be someone who is with us in heavens. And they asked him, what do we do with your daughter? He said, go to the houses in Medina. And so the man and the daughter, and she will know where to go. She was young. And so the man took his daughter, so the wife of Al-Qasim and her daughter, the daughter of Al-Qasim, and they went to Medina where she joined the houses of the Qasim had described it to them. He told them, these are houses where there are no longer any men. And you will hear a lot of wailing and crying because there's only women left. And this is what the Abbasiyin did at that time to Bani Hashim. And so the men would run away or if they were caught, they were all killed, tortured and killed. This is the Bani Hashim at that time. And so the daughter, right away, her mother, the mother of Qasim recognized her from the narrations we are told from her traits and characters and what she looked like, she knew that this was the daughter of her son. And so she asked them, where is my son? And they told her that he had passed away. And so she continued to live with them. And so with this, inshallah, we also understand perhaps from this, we have a narration from Imam al-Rida, the brother of al-Qasim, where he says, though if you cannot visit me, those who visit my brother Al-Qasim, it is as though they have visited me. So we said, you know, we began this with a narration from Imam Al-Qasim that perhaps gives us some indication of who Al-Qasim was. And when Imam Al-Qasim says that visiting Al-Qasim is equivalent to visiting me, then we also understand this is another Imam testifying as to the rank of Al-Qasim. May Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala help us understand the lives of those who were martyred in his way and who kept the remembrance and the teachings of his religion alive through their sacrifices. There are people like Al-Qasim and others, and we've talked about this a number of times. Unfortunately, it's as though, first of all, there are the difficulties of their circumstances. Of course, history is not trying to keep alive the names of these people, especially in those times. But in addition to that, if you are living at a time where someone like Imam al-Rada is alive, of course all the eyes and all the attention is on Imam al-Rada And so sometimes we don't pay enough attention to people like, you know, the smaller stars around the moon or the sun. You stop seeing them because their light is not as the light of the Imams. 
And but when we compare them to regular people, these are our saints. So inshallah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala helps us to understand their lives. Wasallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa tayyibina Allahumma salli